Hello, I'm Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be chatting to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today I'll be talking with Emily Harbridge. She's a pioneer in the broadcast design industry. With over 18 years experience in broadcast design and animation, she started Visual Playground in 2002 and since then has been creating award-winning motion design and animation work for television. She is truly an industry veteran and leader. Over the last few years, Visual Playground has also been doing some amazing work in virtual reality. Hello, Emily. I've really been looking forward to discussing Visual Playground with you. Thanks very much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for having me. What advice would you have for students preparing their folios at university? And what sort of skills and abilities are you looking for in a graduate? We always look for students who have a strong portfolio, who can really showcase their skills. If it's After Effects or 3D, just being able to show something that's of a high standard. And that might mean working on a group project or might working on a project on your own. Just something that really showcases what you can do. It depends on what role we're looking for. If it's a motion graphics role, design is very strong. And we, we like all of our designers to be able to have 3D skills as well. They need to be versatile. And we mostly employ generalists rather than specialists. And therefore, they're more adaptable and able to do more. But in saying that, not everyone can do every part of the job. There will be certain things that people are more skilled at. I even look for things like timing, if they've got good timing with animation and good editing skills. Or, or someone might have good design and composition skills or be really good with colour they're all really important. When students are preparing their CVs, do you think they should put a lot of emphasis on design, layout and presentation? Yes, absolutely. I would say that if someone is going to attach a Word document, it doesn't showcase them in the best light. It should be a PDF and there should be design, there should be consideration taken into the font. And a lot of people these days are actually putting more design elements into those cover letters and, um, and that's really beneficial to them as well. What about the lengths and the substance of the CV? It doesn't need to be very long, but it needs to be relevant. So if you've got jobs working in a a restaurant or, or in a supermarket, it's probably not ideal to put it on. It's better to put awards that you've won. It's better to put experience that you've had or volunteer work or something that relates to the job that you're going for rather than something that that is unrelated. With the majority of the animation industry being male, what would you say to young women who are pursuing a career in animation? I really don't think it should deter them. I think if you want to do something, you should just follow your passion and follow what you want to do. And we make a conscious effort not to hire on gender basis. We hire on skill. So if you're really skilled at your craft, then just go for it. There really shouldn't be anything stopping you. As a successful female in the animation industry, have you faced any hurdles because of your gender? No, I I don't. I haven't. Nothing that... Actually, there there have been when I think about it, but you just get on with it. I don't let things affect me. And, you know, I think there was a time when um, when I started having children that I really noticed the the sexism uh, in a big way. And so that wasn't... That put me in a difficult position because... I wanted to have children at that time. And, um, yeah, so I had a business partner who didn't see me as an equal anymore 
once I started to have children. What sort of issues did that cause? Um, we were going for a pitch and I was eight months pregnant or seven months pregnant and my and I, I was told by my business partner at the time that I shouldn't go to the pitch because I was pregnant. Yeah. But I just said, no, I'm going. <laughs> so... <laughs> and we ended up winning it. So. so you're traditionally trained in illustration and your first job was working as an illustration artist in the Victorian courts. What was that experience like? It was really interesting. I mean, my degree was in drawing, so I knew how to draw and it's observational drawing, which I, I could do quite well. But you had a very limited amount of time. You had to capture the likeness of the person very, very quickly and then come back and finish the drawing. Yeah, I found that I didn't want to spend a lot of time in court, though. And the longer you, you've spent, you actually listen to the stories and, and it, it can, can actually affect you. So I remember, you know, drawing the vegan murderers and, um, and, and it really disturbed me afterwards. So. so you're working at Channel 9 in the newsroom. So outside your courtroom reporting, did you do a lot of motion graphics there before you started your business? And what sort of equipment were you using back then? I did within Channel 9. We were working on paint box systems. They didn't have Photoshop or the computers that they had in the the department at the time. We're just starting to come in. They had 3D Studio Max and they didn't have After Effects. I pushed because I had studied with, you know, good computers at uni and I pushed for them to put After Effects into the department. And from then on, we started using it and doing opening title sequences for Channel 9. So working on shows like Surprise, Surprise and some of the other shows I've worked on, Hey, Hey, It's Saturday and The Footy Show, all those shows. And having that live experience was was fantastic as well. Um, So I did motion graphics within the department. So that opened up opportunities. And within that, we, we worked on special projects. We started doing jobs for Collingwood sponsorship, Emirates sponsorship and and PBL's casino bids. So we were doing architecture visualisations back in those days and working for Jamie Packer (laughs) doing the special projects. So I did do a lot of those and Tats Lotto and all kinds of special projects in the department. Doing those projects at Channel 9, did that give you the confidence to start Visual Playground? I had a lot of motion graphics experience within the department and then the opportunity opened up to start Visual Playground. There was a time when a lot of people were being made redundant from Channel 9 and it was a time when Roving Enterprises, had, they had Channel 9 had, um, had, had the show at the time and then they started their own production company and went to Channel 10 and that really gave us the opportunity. They said... You know, we will give you all our work from uh, Rove if, yeah. and if, you know, you can leave and we, you've got work. And from that, they also had Skid House. They had Before the Game. Then they had the ARIA Awards. Yeah. And the ARIA Awards probably was the most high-profile job that we, that we worked on. Fantastic project to work on. I think it was 2003 when we did the first ARIA Awards. Yeah. Going to the ARIAs as well was amazing. <laughs> so that was a highlight. And from that, we started to get asked to pitch on other shows. Then we got asked to pitch on Big Brother. So it was, it's all stepping stones. We, we did, you know, you work on a few shows, your name gets out there, you gain recognition, get asked to pitch. We got asked to pitch by Endemol Southern Star at the time to pitch on Big Brother, and we ended up winning it. And that was massive. And that would have been probably 2005, and it, there were five 
packages that had to be produced for five separate shows. And we had a small team, probably four or five people at the time. And um, so it was, it was a huge project for us to take on. From then, that's when everything sort of took off and we started to get a lot more work. Often animators and designers struggle to grow their business beyond, say, two people. What were the key drivers that allowed you to take the next step and then grow even further quite quickly? Well, I I actually don't, it didn't feel like it expanded quickly. For me, it's always been more organic kind of growth. And I mean, very quickly, we were able to put one or two people on and it really just sort of grew from there. And depending on what skills that we needed, and we'd put people on part-time as well, rather than putting, it's it's quite difficult to put people on full-time sometimes initially when you, you think of a whole salary that you have to pay. So sometimes it, it's better to have someone in one or two days a week or three days a week. Yeah. And that way, and then when you're busy, you get them to do extra days. So you can sort of build up slowly like that. I mean, for us, we just, at the time, we were quite flexible and nimble and we were able to do a lot of things. The the big post houses all had flame and flint and we were working off desktop machines. So we were able to start the business using desktop computers when no one else was really doing that. In the television industry, what's the big differences between back when you started and now? The technology's improved We've gone from four by three analog signal to digital to 16.9 to HD to 4K now to virtual reality, which can be up to 18K because you think about it, you're looking at a 2K or 4K image. You have to fill in everything that's around you. So resolution has changed (laughs) in a big way. The, The scape of the media landscape has changed too. The number of digital channels and YouTube and second screens and video content, there really was, in the 90s, there were the five main TV channels. And, you know, from then, the digital channels, the secondary channels all started. There's been a lot of changes over that time. Do you think that people's viewing habits have changed the industry? You used to get huge audience numbers watching free-to-air TV that would easily top two or three million viewers. The producers, they, they could put on what they wanted and they didn't have to put it past a board of people. They didn't have to get approval from the, all the different layers. So there was more creative freedom to be able to pr- produce content, whereas now it seems a lot more controlled and tested because they want to make sure they're reaching the right audience and it's all about numbers and it's always all been about numbers, about how many people, how many eyeballs are watching TV. So having less eyeballs means it has to be more targeted and you really need to know who your audience is and who's going to be watching those particular shows. Do you think that's why television stations put less emphasis on opening titles and broadcast branding these days? Yeah, so that is also something that's changed, I would say. You know, we used to do a lot of opening title sequences and that's what we started the business doing and what we've become known for doing. But I've noticed just in recent years, and this is a this is a push from the networks as well, that they don't want you to actually know that you've stopped watching the show and then they'll skip straight through into a pre-tease and a logo and there's no time for an opening title sequence. I mean, in Australia, it's not like in the States where you've got the big budget shows, the HBOs, or do Game of Thrones and all those different dramas. So they don't tend to put 
a lot of money into the titles here, unfortunately. So we have noticed a big shift in that we're not asked to do as many opening titles anymore. We're still asked to do graphics packages, but unfortunately that's one thing that seems to have really dropped off. So, I mean, we love doing titles. We love the creativity that's involved, as you would. What's the difference between developing a new broadcast brand and developing a broadcast brand that presently exists and adapting it for the Australian market? A lot of the shows that we've taken and adapted, we've, we've adapted MasterChef, The Voice, Top Model, River Cottage. I mean, there's, there's a lot of shows that we, we take the existing brand and then we adapt it. And we give it an Australian flavour. There's a certain look that and an aesthetic that appeals to an Australian audience. And it's been it's interesting, actually, because a lot of the shows that we've done that to, including MasterChef, they've then taken the Australian version and that's the version that they use around the world. So it's, it's nice to see that. But I think the difference is often that you're given the actual logo. It evolves maybe a little bit, but usually you're given the font, the flat vector logo, and then you build around that. You know, we've done different variations for top model. Every time we've done it, the logo will stay the same, but the, the, the image where it, that it sits on the background is what changes. Uh, MasterChef, we've actually rebranded that twice and the coil stays the same and the basic elements stay the same, the flames. So, But even with MasterChef, we took a, a show which that did, didn't have a lot of life in it and we injected the flames and the colour and the bursts and, and the energy into it. That was quite memorable for, for adding all those elements. But in contrast, I'd say coming up with a, a, a show from scratch the process, it, it's a similar process because you're still developing a look. You're probably do, playing around with more different fonts as part of the process, but you're still creating an environment for that logo to sit in. And it's, it's quite similar in a lot of respects. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about Visual Playgrounds branding. Since 2012, you've rebranded Visual Playground twice. Tell us a little bit about the differences between the two. When we first started Visual Playground, the name conjured up this image of a really creative, imaginative environment and we wanted the logo to, to be fun and playful and originally it was a little slide and that sort of represented where we were at that time. And I think over the years we've grown up. When we did the rebrand, I mean, you're telling me it was 2012, I don't know actually what year that was, but it... We, we really wanted to simplify the logo into a geometric shape and it was a current look and it just didn't work. We just couldn't simplify. I wanted to retain the essence of Visual Playground, the logo and the, and the slime and it just kept looking like a shoe. <laughs> it just didn't, when you change it into geometric shapes, it just didn't look like a slide. And so we battled with that and battled with that and looked at all kinds of variations. It just didn't work, and which is why we, we decided to go with another playground equipment image, which was, or icon, which was the swing, following the same lines of the playground and just another symbol of the playground. And that, that was pretty successful for us. But ultimately, each time we've done a rebrand, including the, the latest one, it's like we're, we've matured and we've grown up and we want to be taken more seriously so they're the considerations that we've come to with this latest one. Is the new branding representative of your change in direction as a business? 
Yeah, I, I do, because we are still doing a lot of work in the broadcast space and that's something that I'm very passionate about. But we are doing a lot of work now with new technology, with virtual reality, with using other forms of technology. So that's important to us to be seen, to be edgy, to be progressive. I think those kind of values are injected into this current branding. You've been very successful in winning awards over the years and having your work selected at places like South by Southwest. You've also done some nice passion projects like Pause Fest. What do you think the benefits of winning awards and doing passion projects are? That's an interesting question. We do like entering our work into awards and, of course, we like winning them. But I wouldn't say that winning awards translates to more work. (laughs) It may translate to more recognition and I think... Even a lot of people have heard of Visual Playground. So many people I talk to, they say, oh, I've heard of Visual Playground. And I don't know that if that's just because of the longevity of how long we've been around now, which is will be 14 years this year, or if it's as a result of, you know, the winning awards and whether that's had an effect on people knowing who we are. But it is nice to be recognised. It was nice to be recognised as a finalist at South by Southwest. But those projects, the pause project, I mean, that was a fantastic project to be involved in and we still get people commenting on how much they like that project. But it, it, they're difficult. it's difficult to do those type of projects all the time because they're not paid projects, that one. It was a project of love and as a studio it's difficult to take on too many of the, that type of project because who's paying for it? You know, ultimately the studio's paying for everyone's time in doing that work. So, yes, you get an amazing result out of it. You get to go to take the work to South by Southwest. You win awards. But, you know, that's the price. I've shown your passion projects to students over the years and they really love them. It inspires them. That's surely a benefit. It's beneficial then in attracting employees and attracting people who want to get into the industry, who want to work with us in that respect. Pitching for free has become a big part of the motion graphic industry. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we've always pitched. We've always wanted to be part of the process because I think you have to be in it to win it. I don't agree with pitching when you have five or more companies. I think that that's really wrong because I think you can be selective and choose three to to have a solid pitch, three companies that you'd like to work with. Um, because otherwise people are putting a lot of time and effort into this work and it's just it's not paid for. So I actually believe that pitches should be paid, even if it's just a token amount, even if it's $1,000. I think for the amount of work that you put in, it's worthwhile to have a percentage of the job that goes into that pitch process. And sometimes people will do that and have it as a paid pitch and I, I actually respect that. I've talked to a lot of different people in the industry about this and it appears that there's a lot of wasted time, money and resources and the fact that the pitches are not paid for, it really affects the strengths of the motion graphics companies to deliver the work that is paid for. It does because you need to recoup the time spent from other jobs and, I mean, we find often that that pitch process, there's no budget allocated for that. And then you get to the production and you quote on the production, it's like, well, what about all the work that we've already done? And they just want you to absorb that. So even when you do win the job, that can be really challenging. But I do think there is a place for it because I think 
if there are a few companies pitching, that you're going to get a, a selection of, of a choice of what direction you want to go and you're going to get that pretty quickly rather than working with a company and it, who may or may not get to what, what you want. You're going to get there faster. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about your work in virtual reality. So Emily, you're really passionate about VR. What are the things that you've learned over the last two years about production and post-production? There's quite a lot of post involved in VR because what you have to do is stitch different camera footage together. So you work with a minimum of three, two or three cameras and up to as many as 12 and they all film in different directions. And what you're doing is taking each of those shots and stitching it together with the next camera and it creates a panorama or a spherical video and that's the basis of 360 video or um, VR. So there's different ways of creating VR. There's, there's filming it, there's rendering it. Rendering, there's no stitching involved, but it's very, very intensive on the computer. Lots of rendering and it's quite, quite a process. I mean, we do, we combine the two as well. So we'll film and we'll combine motion graphics into that space as well. So, so when you're doing a VR 3D project, how long does the render process take? We've got a project on at the moment and we've got a render farm here. So normally it might take a few minutes to do a frame of animation. It can take a day, a frame. So, <laughs> so it's a quite a big step up. And we've had a project here on the render farm and it's actually a three-minute video which started off as a minute and a half. And when we did the animatic and we did... The, the, nothing's changed. The voiceover hasn't changed. It's the same right from when we did the animatic. But what we found in that process of making it into a VR piece is you need time for things to breathe. You need to let things sit while you can take in the environment and the surroundings. It's not like normal video where you can do quick cuts all the time and it, it, it's quite different. So from a one, one minute and a half video, it's ended up doubling in length. It's, it's now three minutes. So... A three-minute video on the render farm has equated to about three weeks in rendering, and that's just rendering. So as like the normal process, do you do a lot of pre-visualisation and test renders to save time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've adapted our current pipeline to, to work with VR, but a lot of the processes are similar. You still start with the script and you storyboard it, and you do an animatic and all of, if there's something that's a 3D animation project, the animatic was done in the 3D program. So it's all sort of streamlined. And with your rendering, are you using new techniques and new processes to try and speed things up? All the time, we're always trying to optimise how we work with files and make them so they're not heavy to be able to get high quality renders out without taking too much time to render. And that, that's a real skill. And other times what we'll do is render different passes and then composite them later. So you're not rendering the full scene. So it, for this case, we rendered out the environment, the background plate first, then we rendered the two characters, and then the client decided that he wanted to put a cat in there. So, <laughs> so then there's been the cat. So the actual video prior to the cat took two, two weeks to render, and then it's been an additional week for the cat. <laughs> Have you been using cloud rendering? 
We have done cloud rendering and it's been successful for us. Uh, the reason we, I mean, we just don't have the bandwidth. I mean, you think, you think of the files that you have to download if you're rendering it all to the cloud. You still need to download it all and that, that's a lot of time. We'll probably use some of those processes in the future. We're also doing a major upgrade to our computers and render farm in the future. So, which will definitely benefit those type of projects. So when was it that you stopped using the tools and started directing the teams? I haven't really done a lot of the work for a while now. It's been quite a few years. I don't know exactly what year that was, but I still like to dabble. I still like to use After Effects. I still know how to use it. Um, I've never really got into doing 3D that much. Um, but I, I, for me, what, what I love doing is the creative process. So whether I'm on the tools or not, I still love coming up with the ideas. That's really important to me. It'd be great to hear a little bit about your project you did for the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yeah, so Visual Playground was involved in the VR cinema that was part of the Melbourne International Film Festival and we created a synced app that allowed for synchronous playback on all Gear VR devices. So what that meant is we partnered with Samsung to provide the Gear VRs and it was a cinema experience in that the audience came into a gallery space, into the cinema, they sat down and they all could view the content at exactly the same time. And they were ticketed sessions. People came in and watched some of the short films in VR. And we, we ran that for the duration of MIF. And, um, yeah, it was great. It was a really great um, to be involved in. Do you feel like you're educating the community and are clients getting excited about VR? We are doing so much education. <laughs> so we are doing a lot of demos. We've been doing a lot of demos for the more than 12 months, going, doing agency visits, doing talks, breaking down the process of how to make good VR content, what it's all about, demystifying, showing examples of what other people are doing around the world. So making it easy for people to take it up. So we're doing that as part of Visual Playground. We're doing that as part of Plato, which is the new JV that we've started with the Osho Empire, which is storytelling focus in VR. And we're also doing that, well, I'm also doing that as part of Real World VR. And the Real World VR are the meetups, the events that we hold once every two months. And we invite different speakers to come down and show their work and talk about their work. And also it's a chance for people to try out virtual reality. They can ask questions to the, to the people, to the speakers. They can test out the Vive, the Gear VR, the cardboard. They can have a go. It's really building the VR community and getting people to be involved. So Emily, you covered a lot there. You covered real world VR and Plato. Could you tell us a little bit more about Plato? Yeah, so we worked with Michael Beats, who's one of the directors from the Otto Empire, and we worked on a short film called Jaffrey. That premiered, that was a VR film. That was our first collaborative project together with the Otto Empire. We worked together on that, and that was released or premiered at, at MIF. Um, it's since now been accepted into, into the Toronto Film Festival, which we're really excited about. In that collaboration and working in that piece, um, we, we decided that we wanted to work together with the Otto Empire and create a new VR venture, which was Plato, so Visual Playground and Otto. So look, that focus is on storytelling and the Otto Empire have a number of directors on their books that we can access. They're very strong in, in production and they've got a lot of agency relationships. 
combined with Visual Playground's background in post-production and the technology and the knowledge that we have, bringing that together, it's just a really strong team and a strong service that we can provide. So you're the post-production partner? And the production as well, but they also look after the production management and the direction. So the technology in VR seems to be developing quite rapidly. How long do you think before the content quality catches up with the potential of VR? The technology is developing and especially with the different headsets that have been released already, so the HTC Vive, the Gear VR, the Oculus. So with some of those particular headsets, there's a real focus on gaming and so there will be a big uptake in those markets. The Gear VR is interesting because it's connected with Oculus and you can access the Oculus store and there's quite a lot of content already that you can access and I actually like going home and watching it I bought a Samsung phone just so I could do that. And you just download, like the New York Times is fantastic. It's all free. You can download all the content. And even if you search 360 video now on YouTube, it's it's very accessible. I mean, you can turn any smartphone into a virtual reality viewer combined with a Google Cardboard. You just press a button in YouTube and you put place that into a Google Cardboard. So it's very, very accessible. And, I mean, I was looking today or yesterday about, I mean, the BBC have created a lot of content. The Discovery Channel, all the, the, these channels um, are creating content. So there is a lot already. SBS have got their own app. They've created some content already and they're looking for content. But the, the media here really needs to sort of grab hold of that and um, and run with that. I think one of the biggest obstacles is funding at the moment, that there needs to be more of a push with funding of particular projects because there's a lot of people that want to make VR and it would be good to have some assistance. I feel like I've learnt a lot about VR today. Now I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the future of Visual Playground. So where do you see Visual Playground going in the next 12 months and what's your long-term vision? Visual Playground has a really strong design base and we want to build on that. We want to be able to deliver the high-end broadcast graphics, but we also want to be able to use new technology. We want to be able to deliver content for virtual reality. We want to be able to create interactive engagements, interactive activations. We want to be able to do you know maybe AR I mean who knows what the new technology will be but using a base of production and post-production and motion graphics and design combining that with new technology I think it's really exciting where it can all go. So outside running your business you get up to a few other things you're a mother of three children you like a bit of rowing and it appears that you walk to the top of Mount Everest base camp how did that come about? Yeah, so the opportunity came up with a friend who was going to be climbing to the summit of Mount Everest and she invited me to come along and this was last year and I went along as her support support crew and I just thought, why not? I, You know, it never was something that I'd considered even doing but I, I was up to the challenge. I thought it'd be a fantastic opportunity and, and you know, it, it actually was. It was incredible. It was, it was just amazing, breathtaking, going climbing and trekking and going up through those mountains. It was just absolutely spectacular. Do you think that achieving that walk and having that experience gave you a little bit of a different perspective? Look, I think it's always great to travel. It's great to see other countries and see how other people live. 
And when I came back, it did give me a bit different perspective, particularly since a week after I returned, the earthquake hit Nepal. And I just felt how lucky I was to have got out of there. And so many of the people that I knew were actually up on base camp when the, the avalanche hit there. And yeah, so it, it does give you a different insight into how people live. And it, yeah, so I'd encourage, I'd encourage everyone to travel and to have those kind of experiences. I'd like to now talk a little bit about balance. You run a pretty successful, busy business. How do you get balance in your life? I think it's always important to have time for yourself. And for, for me, I get out in the mornings and before sunrise, I'm out on the water It's and you're not talking to anyone. <laughs> so you're sort of in your own zone. I think it's really healthy to, to be active and play sport. And that's something just I enjoy doing. So your next challenge, you're trying to run up the biggest hill in France or something like that? Okay, so my, my next challenge for next year is that one of the girls that I row with, we, we climb the Eureka Tower every, every year. We do the stair challenge on the Eureka Tower. And next year we've decided that we're going to go to Switzerland and do the world's longest stair climb. And it's up an old railway line. So that's our latest challenge. <laughs> I think that's a great place to finish up. Been great. Thanks very much for giving us an insight into Visual Playground. I've really enjoyed the chat. Okay, thanks, Matthew. Thanks very much for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please give us a review on iTunes. And you can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find us on Facebook. You can find Emily at visualplayground.com.au. Our intro music was by the Australian artist John Vella. Hope you have a good week. See you later. Bye. Masters of Motion. Masters of Motion. Bye-bye.